Helping our patients manage their immune health has never been as important as now. Hi, it's Lisa Costabier and you are invited to my upcoming live and online masterclass on how to build immune fitness and manage acute viral infections. You can catch this masterclass on May 11 as part of the Biocuticals Clinical Mastery Series. If you are looking for more evidence-based strategies for maintaining optimal immune health, reserve your place now, biocuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph, a Melbourne-based chiropractor and naturopath, and joining us today is Dr. Andrea Huddleston. She's a women's health, natural fertility expert and integrative chiropractor practicing in Perth. She's the co-host of the award-winning, top-rated podcast, Wellness Women Radio, and is affectionately referred to as the period whisperer by her patients. In addition to her chiropractic degrees, Dr. Andrea holds two postgraduate master's degrees in women's health medicine and reproductive medicine. She's a leader in women's health, a great friend of mine, sought-after presenter, avid coffee addict, and a crazy dog lady. Thank you for joining us today, Andrea. Uh, thank you so much, Damien. I'm super happy to be here. Great. Hey, Andrea, when we look around and we, we you know, you and I see a broad range of different patients, and I suppose these days you've... Um, You've really narrowed, I suppose, your, not narrowed, but you're very specific. You know, people come to you because of hormone dysregulation. You're known mm. as the period whisperer for a reason. Like there's, there's a reason why you're known as the hormone whisperer and the period whisperer. So we're seeing record levels of reproductive dysfunction more than ever before. What are your thoughts on this? What's the problem? What's going on? Uh, that is, that's such a good question. And I think just like any other chronic health condition, I think it's because our current lifestyles just aren't conducive for optimal hormonal function, right, or optimal reproductive function. And I always like to think of the menstrual cycle as being, or it should be considered really that thick vital sign. So just as an important marker of health for women as is something like their own blood pressure because it gives us this clue into the overall health of that woman and the well-being of that woman as well. Um, and this is not just for cycling women um, in their reproductive years. This is also as we transition into, say, perimenopause and menopause. The longer we cycle for, for example, really dictates the health of women, you know, later in life. Um, and if we want to get really specific about the things that I think are causing so much of this reproductive dysfunction, um, I sort of oversimplify things into what I think are the main um, causative factors of, of hormonal dysfunction, and I call them my five S's of, of hormonal imbalances. And the first part of that, Demo, if you if you want to sort of get started on that yeah, straight away, we that. can dive yeah, into yeah. that. So yeah. my first S of that is is stress, mm. right? And no stress, you know, no stress at the moment, is there? No stress anywhere. No, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially not over here in Western Australia, right? We're so oh. stress free; it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and you know, we're, we're all under unprecedented, um, you know, amounts of stress and pressure at the moment, but. This was occurring well before the pandemic hit even and I think the amount of pressure on women and the amount that we take on and the lack of balance that we have in our lives and everything else certainly contributes to um, just the breakdown of our system and even if we just look at from, say, like a bio 
biochemical level, if we're under that, that chronic stress, we're producing lots and lots of cortisol, then we're robbing progesterone to make more cortisol, and then we're getting this unregulated, you know, ratios between estrogen and progesterone, and then our thyroids are shutting down. And, you know, I sort of explain to my patients that whole stress hormone cycle so that they can really understand that just from the pressure at work or just from constantly rushing around, um, you know, all of those things can be why their hormones are so all over the place and why we're seeing such statistics of almost every woman with some sort of hormonal dysfunction. Um, like it's a pretty sad state of affairs, I think, for, for women's health at the moment. Um, so stress, would, would I think, Would you say that absolutely... pretty much every woman has some kind of hormone dysfunction? Is that what you're saying? So like whether it be acne, whether it be period pain, whether it be endometriosis, whether it be PCOS, whether it be amenorrhea, dysmenorrhea, whatever, like shortened cycle, lengthened cycle, pain on menstruation, stress on menstruation, emotions on menstruation, like, would you say that pretty much every woman's got some kind of dysregulation. Uh, look, and I think that um, the, the subsect or the sample of patients that I see probably um, makes me a little biased in this, but I really do think that that is the case because if we look at statistically, they say about one in nine women have, say, endometriosis. I think, I think it, it should be a bit higher than that, but let's just round up and say about 10%. Um, up to 21% of women have PCOS. And those two conditions rarely overlap. So that's like 30% of the population now. About one in four women have some sort of fertility challenge. And then I'm sure, Damien, you experience this as well. Like I'm seeing thyroid conditions pop up in almost, you know, epidemic proportions, especially after women have had, you know, their second or third baby. Um, And then you know, finally, women who experience period pain that is enough to be, um, you know, interfere with their activities of daily living or require pain medication is like 95% of women. That's just period pain. So statistically... That's more than, that's more than every woman. Yeah, I know. That was, a, that was a terrible stage <laughs> that I was going on. But even just in that wow. first section, you know, that's at least 30% of women um, who have some sort of diagnosable um, hormonal interference. Um, yeah. So, and, and there's certainly reasons for this as well. And, um, you know, so, certainly stress is one of them. But I think this is also the way that women have been treated within, you know, the um, standard Western medical model. Um, and the treatment approach to that, I think, um, can be part of why we're seeing such dysfunction these days as well. Could, I mean, um, we're talking kind of almost organic or we're talking more about biochemistry here. And when we talk about stress, that's a autonomic nervous system function, right? So stress in itself is an autonomic nervous system function. So we know that that's brain-derived. The brain is signaling, it's feeding forward, feeding back, it's receiving information, sending information. That comes from the brain and the spinal cord, right? So we're talking about a yeah. neurological function but often we're talking about the management of it with biochemistry. And to me, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect. But where I kind of want to, you know, go with that is that for, for much of what we talk about in terms of the management of, this, of these issues, particularly in and around stress, and we'll come back to all the other S's shortly. But yeah. when, we, when, when we look at this, we kind of go, okay, well, well then – as a naturopath, I've got my naturopath hat on here, right? And I think about how do I manage the autonomic nervous system? I might throw magnesium at it. I might throw some herbs at it. I might throw 
um, maybe some behavioural changes, whether it be walking or meditation or what you know, some other different things. If I put a, a, a medical hat on, I might look at anti-anxiety medication or sleep medication or whatever else. You know, so there's these biochemical influences over that. But there's food that is biochemical. There's pharmaceutical and nutraceutical and phytoceutical interventions that we might consider. But we're talking neurology here, right? We're talking about the nervous system mm. and the brain. So can we delve into that a little bit? Can we talk a bit more about that? Um, I, I would love to. And Damien, you are going to be so much more succinct at explaining um, this sort of thing than, than what I am. But um, I know for for my patients, for example, um, part of the way that we would address the chronic stress would certainly be through all the avenues that you've just discussed. You know, we might use herbs, we might use life, um, lifestyle and dietary interventions and, you know, looking at what the root cause of those triggers are and everything else. But then the other intervention that we have is obviously adjusting them. And from the way that um, I experience their changes with that is that, that they then experience their environment and those stresses differently. Um, and even if we just look at how, because obviously we're talking about, you know, women's health and reproductive and, um, you know, hormonal function, the uterus itself is under autonomic control. So, Therefore, changes in the nervous system is absolutely going to change how the uterus is functioning, which will then have a flow-on effect to how the ovaries are functioning because mm-hmm. we need that functional uterus for adequate ovarian function as well. <laughs> um, yes. I've said that word too much now. but um, <laughs> It's a functional uh, medicine but, podcast, you know, FX Med. So, oh, yeah. you know, it's functional. Yeah, that, that, that's very true. Um, yeah. But we need that brain-body connection to be working adequately for, you know, optimal function. Yeah, it's a great. Well, that's a great point. And so, when we think about that in terms of distortion, so we're talking about dysfunctional in, in, in say, an autonomic nervous system sense, or dysfunction in terms of dysregulation of the hormones. They, they, you know, very closely related and and mm. and easy for us as chiropractors and us who are well versed in um, both the biochemistry and the neurology of all of that. You know, it's easy for us to kind of see that, but how do we explain that to our patients? Like, how do we explain that? Let's say I'm a naturopath right now, um, or an integrated GP right now. How do I explain that? Yes, you, you know, there is a biochemical component, but the brain controls all of that. You know, the, the brain is is your master controller in this sense. So it's all under autonomic control. Is there a way in which we can explain that easily? Um, I think the way you just did that sounded really interesting <laughs> to me, Jamie. That was beautiful, you know. Um, there it is. In its most simplistic, um, most simplistic way, it is the brain that is the control mechanism of everything. And so, if we don't have that that brain body connection happening, then you know, what are we going to see that changes after that? Yeah. And I know that. Um, Oh, you know, even if we look at, and maybe we'll get into this um, shortly, but one of one of my um, my five S's of hormonal imbalances or hormonal problems is actually spinal problems, mm-hmm. um, and it was just a uh, handy that spine starts with an S. Uh, <laughs> 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 included in my yes. five S's, but it really is 
um, for what I see in practice and my interpretation of, you know, the, the issues that we're seeing in women's health, the, the posture of a woman and the pelvic position and, you know, pelvic distortion patterns and everything else dramatically influences, for example, menstrual health. Um, and this is documented. There is research that supports this as well. Um, and it's something that I see in practice every day. Um, Damon, do you want to, should we dive into a little bit more about that now? I'm so glad you said that because that's where I wanted to go because I thought, oh, great, yeah. you've brought that up. So let's go into that. So I was going to ask you, is there a link to the health of the pelvis and pelvic distortion? That's the question. And I'd love us to just kind of head that direction because you've gone to that S. Let's let's head there. Um, I This is one of the most fascinating things that I find in women at the moment and I'm a little bit obsessed with it and that is this idea of pelvic position and how it relates to uterine position. Mm. And really simply without going into like super in-depth anatomy, the uterus is not really attached to anything. It's suspended within ligaments that anchor into the pelvic bowl. And the most important ones that really maintain that uterine position, and I'll bring it back to why that's relevant shortly, is the the uterosacral ligament, which attaches into the front of the sacrum Mm -hmm. and then to the cervix. And then there's the cardinal ligaments that go from the cervix to the base of the pelvis or the ischium, and then the pubocervical ligaments that go from the cervix to the pubic synthesis. So if you I'm like moving my hands to try and show you, but I realize this is audio, so that's not helpful at all. But <laughs> we might need some pictures. We might need some pictures. We'll get a diagram to everybody. Go to the Happily. show notes. Don't forget to go to the show notes and get these diagrams because they're great diagrams. They're awesome. Yeah, totally. I'll, I'll send you those for sure. So I want you to understand that the uterus is suspended within those ligamentous structures. And about 75 to 80% of women have an anterior pelvic tilt or that forward pelvic tilt. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that same percentage of the population also have an antiverted uterus, so that forward-tilting uterus. And the reason that this is important is because when women um, menstruate, part of the the movement of the in the flow of blood um, with menstruation is simply with gravity and it's with those uterine um, contractions that happen to expel the blood mm-hmm. however if you have like um, more increased flexion of the uterus in either antiversion or retroversion so backwards tilting yes. then that blood pools in that front surface of the uterus which means that it requires stronger um, myometrial contractions to actually expel that blood and that those myometrial contractions are cramps, they're period cramps. That's the period pain or a big portion of the period pain that women experience during their period. And it's a... It's a biomechanical um, positional issue of the uterus when we've got a pelvis that's sitting in that sort of end, like, you know, forward... Um, flexed, um, you know, a position, and then we've got the uterus, which is also antiverted, and it might be anti-flexed or everything, anything like that. Or mm-hmm. if we've also got a retroverted uterus, but it's the degree of flexion in either antiversion or retroversion, which is an independent risk factor for dysmenorrhea or period pain. And it's not associated with pregnancy. So this is independent of those things that we know that period pain goes up according to that degree of flexion. So that optimal uterine position, which is dictated by optimal pelvic position, equals better menstrual health, less painful periods. Um, And then we can sort of um, expand that to possibly better reproductive function as well. Wow. This is mind-blowing. This, I mean... I'm a chiropractor. I know this stuff, but <laughs> hearing it, 
is unbelievable. Like this is so good and I just I'm, I wish this was live and we're going out to the millions of listeners that we do have and we were, you know, and I was watching those little light bulbs go off because people will be going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Like this isn't just a simple Vitex issue. This could be a positional issue and this is absolutely fascinating. So... Yeah, yep. And there's hints that like um, the practitioners can look for as well um, because, you know, the, you may not know if your patient has, say, an antiverted or a retroverted uterus, but this is something that I think should be part of a clinical consideration whenever there is um, a complaint of, for example, primary dysmenorrhea or even just any kind of menstrual associated pain like um, the that is in the instance of endometriosis as well. I think that this always needs to be um, looked at or addressed um, because of the like the prevalence. And so, Damien, I can talk through some really easy like symptom pictures that they may be able to look for to help differentiate, say, an, an antiverted versus a retroverted uterus, if that would be helpful. Yeah, let's do that because I know everyone's okay. going to want to know, like how do I know that it's not just a progesterone issue? That's what they're going to be asking. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I've, I've, simpl- I've simplified that. I've made that really basic and that's probably yeah, not everyone's totally. asking. But, you know, it's like <laughs> I'm going, how do, we, how do we add an extra layer there? Like what are we looking for to kind of understand, you know, where, where should our clinical thought go? How do we reason with this to decide what's the cause of someone's dysmenorrhea? So I think like obviously a really thorough history taking around that and understanding the quality and the timing of the pain as well. Mm-hmm. So normally one of the biggest indications that I see with a patient who has like a positional issue that's related, contributing to her period pain is she will get mm-hmm. pain and cramping before the bleeding starts. Uh-huh. Um, and because it's almost like the body is trying, trying to expel that blood, but there's that structural component to it where things aren't moving as well. And obviously, you know, we've, we've got to address things like the prostaglandin release and, and hormonal imbalances and everything else along the way, but this is such a huge part of that. And yeah. with an antiverted uterus, um, and yes, anatomically the uterus sits slightly antiverted anyway, but as it increases that in that antiversion, you might might get that that classic um, anterior pelvic pain. The patient might describe dragging into their legs. They may get pain into the vagina or the low back, um, sometimes during sex as well. They may have trouble um, inserting tampons, but they might feel like some sort of internal pressure even with proper insertion. Mm-hmm. As they're getting um, or building up to their period, they might notice increased urinary frequency or getting that fullness of their bladder as well. So they'll feel that pressure of obviously the um, their anterior structures of the uterus pushing into the bladder. They might yeah. have high rates of things like UTIs. Um, they might get you know mild incontinence, but also you might actually just see on them that they might have that just that little that little pooch or that protrusion of that lower abdominal area. Yeah, and, which is very common. Um, like it's very common these days. If seventy five percent of women have an antiverted pelvis, um, then that's got to exactly. be. I mean, that's more common than uncommon. Exactly, yeah. And women um, will often come in with, you know, ultrasound reports um, dis- and that describes the position of the uterus. So that's, you know, a little bit of a cheat sheet for us. But if you're pretty skilled, you can also palpate the position of it too. And just with a symptom picture, um, it's really easy to differentiate, um, you know, what you're dealing with, whether it's an antiverted, anti-flex uterus or a retroverted. Um, mm-hmm. And I find that 
a retroverted uterus is much more of a almost pathological condition. So the reasons why a woman might have a retroverted uterus is is often from things like infections. Um, it might be uterine scarring from infections like pelvic inflammatory disease, um, STIs. Mm-hmm. It can be obviously from endometriosis adhesions as well. Um, yeah. It can well, one be one thing from, we don't like, talk about in that regard with regards to scarring. Could abortions have anything to do with that? Could there be anything else? Maybe, um, you know, scraping the uterus to, you know, reset or to, you know, there's all these different types of interventions. Like, is it just, Mm. no one talks about that. Could that be something? Oh, excellent question, Damien. Um, I actually haven't looked into the role of like the DNC, um, for example, um, yeah. and what kind of uh, scarring and whether or not there's adhesions, adhesion formation from that. I'm not sure, but that's mm. definitely something that I'm going to look into because you've um, piqued my interest there. <laughs> yeah, I just <laughs> wonder, certainly. you know, because it's, it's happening more and more. It's not, not, maybe not more and more, but it's happening. And so, yeah. you know, could that be something that we miss in our clinical you know, diagnosis and our note-taking, you know, how many of us are asking what sort of surgeries have you had and do we just gloss over the potential that might actually have something to do with it? And certainly the more, like, laparoscopic surgeries that a woman might have is certainly going to increase scar and adhesion formation. You know, we know that. Um, And while that is obviously still the gold standard um, medical treatment option for endometriosis, it's there's pros and cons there, right? (laughs) Yeah, um, women can also have a retroverted uterus from like big falls on their sacrum um, yeah. and just poor pelvic alignment from chronic high heel wearing, um, poor like... They look posture. so good though. They look so yeah. good high heels. Oh, that's, the, that's the thing that I get, you know, when I mention that to ladies, you know, high heels could be involved, could be part of the problem. And they're like, but yeah, but they look so good. I'm not ready to give up high heels yet, you know. So that's often something that I get told. Yeah, and I totally understand. And um, I'm probably as vain as they come. But <laughs> you have to you have to really weigh up the, um, you know, can you fence it with this? And if you have severe period pain, I would expect that, um, you know, you can ditch your high heels for a while, but, you know, if that's indicated, that, that's just my my take on it anyway. My patients know that they cannot wear heels into my practice, otherwise they have to leave barefoot. Um, but also I'm a bit of a hypocrite because whenever I'm teaching, um, for example, and, Damien, you would have seen this, I'm always in super high heels. Um, but I think that's part of um just part of the outfit, right? It helps get you in the zone. Uh, and some of the, the signs and symptoms that, um, practitioners may be able to sort of tease out to determine whether or not this patient um, may be looking at more sort of a retroverted or retroflexed uterus. Um, can normally I see much stronger period pain with this position, and you'll get normally low back pain during the period rather than just that classic classic anterior pelvic pain. Um, you can get changes in bowel movements as well during the period. So women might explain things like constipation or really thin stools before the period Um, and because obviously like the uterus grows so significantly um, in volume just before menstruation and it pushes into the back of the rectum so that's why um, just their bowel movements can change and it will be so much heavier if the 
something like, I don't know, meiosis or sort of fibroids that are present too. Yeah, um, right. Some women can even experience really foul-smelling menstruation because mm-hmm. in that position with that heaviness on the rectum, they can actually get sort of toxins from the bowel seeping into the uterus as well. Right, um, you know, we normally see more fertility challenges with a retroverted uterus. Um, we see a more common occurrence of things like sciatica as well. Um, Around because, the period of time? Yeah, yeah. So that cyclical sciatica I think yeah. is a really big red flag for either endometriosis or retroverted uterus. Um, And we'll often see more like ovulation pain and um, normally more advanced endometriosis, I will see a retroverted uterus as well. Wow. This is big. I reckon people are going to be rewinding this and taking notes and going, oh, back 15 seconds, 15 seconds. You know when you want the podcast to go back one minute, not 15 seconds at a time? I reckon that's what they're going to want to do to get all these little nuggets that you're sharing with us, Andrea. This is um, absolutely amazing. So it's pretty clear that there's a a pelvic distortion um, component to what uh, our female patients could be feeling if they're coming to see us with um, dysmenorrhea. What about amenorrhea? I mean, is that also similarly related or could that just be purely hormonal and then if it is purely hormonal is that also under autonomic control well i mean the uterus and the ovaries are under autonomic control um so i think that, that you know if there's autonomic dysregulation it's reasonable to see women with either heavier periods more painful periods or even absent periods Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, um, and just to get like super nerdy, um, the <laughs> uterus is innervated by sympathetically by the urovaginal plexus, um, mm-hmm. and parasympathetically from S2 to S4 from the sacrum. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, that's why like big falls on the sacrum, any, um, irritation of those nerves is obviously going to change that. Um, and the reason that that is like so important is because, contractions in the uterus, so, for example, during um, childbirth or menstruation to yes. expel the blood or, or whatever we're trying to achieve there is a stop-go system. Uh-huh. So we need that balance between the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. So does that does that make sense? And I'll get to – I'll cycle back to Amy. It does, in a yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, does. So and I think it's good for everyone just to kind of let's let's bring everyone back up to speed with that one again because you just called it a stop-go system. So we go that either going parasympathetic or sympathetic. Is that what you're saying? So we're going yeah. it's on or off or it, maybe just explain that a bit better so that I can get my words right okay. too. So essentially we need we need balance between the parasympathetic and, the, and sympathetic nervous system to be able to control that properly. So, for example, um, if the like the hypogastric plexus is stimulated too much, then yes. we're getting intense contractions during the period. We're getting intense cramping. We're getting more excessive blood flow. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does, um, yeah. And the uterus is so important for even though it's not a hormone-producing organ, we need a functional uterus for proper ovarian function. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is so critical for women who um, may be considering, say, a hysterectomy um, mm-hmm. because the blood supply, lymphatic flow and nerve supply that goes to the ovaries goes to the uterus first and comes from the uterus as well. 
And wow. obviously our ovaries are our main hormone-producing, um, you know, organs or our primary sex organs in, um, in menstruating women. And then obviously as we um, transition through that midlife um, time into perimenopause and menopause, our adrenal glands and our peripheral tissue takes over the production of those hormones. But during, um, you know, obviously puberty and our fertile years, our ovaries are responsible for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need that proper innovation for that proper control of the uterus to also control ovarian function too, and hence hormonal production. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, 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 totally. Totally makes sense. Okay. I'm thinking I'm stuck on the 75% of women have an antiverted uterus or was it uterus or antiverted uterus? I'm stuck on that. And the reason I'm stuck on that is because I think about all the, you know, we have an increasing rate of weight gain rate of weight gain and we see a lot of obesity and that forward um, carriage of weight through the abdomen into the pelvis, could that also be something that's related? And I want to go back to falls and slips and that sort of thing, accidents to the coccyx, but like these postural distortions as a result of where we carry weight or where women carry weight, is that could that be related? Oh, uh, I mean, absolutely, like and dramatically as well. And um we also see women who are overweight or obese have much heavier and often more painful periods because part of what happens within the uterus when you're menstruating is um, the, the uterine lining repairs itself, um, at, you know, almost instantaneously as we get that shedding. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the increased body weight, there's this increase in oxidative stress so that um, that healing of that uterine lining is so much slower. Right. So we get so much more bleeding, so much right. more pain, um, right. and that's related to obesity and it's related to that, that excess body tissue as well. So um, there's certainly there's a, a postural issue there. Um, mm -hmm. There's purely just a, um, a body tissue <laughs> um, kind of issue there that's driving that oxidative stress and everything else. Um, yeah. But I find that some of my um, more obese patients struggle more with period pain because of purely that uterine position issue and it's much harder to correct as well. And could it also be, let's go back to the biochemical thing, given that we know that body fat secretes um, interleukin-6, I think it is, and yeah. estrogen and there's a hormonal component of control with, uh, with you know, body fat and, and you know, there's got to be some kind of biochemical component to that as well as the postural and neurological distortion thing there. So there's the kind of it's two-pronged, it's two pronged, double-pronged where we've got like a metabolic issue that needs addressing. Yeah. So we've got to definitely make sure that we're helping our patients get the weight off and explain to them that this has hormonal influence, et cetera, et cetera, but also then explain to them that the weight itself and where it sits has an impact on the position of the uterus and the position of the pelvis um, and therefore – both both things, like we're talking biochemical and neurological slash structural, could be influencing these patients' symptoms. Absolutely. And I sort of try to explain to my patients that excess body tissue is its own endocrine-producing organ. Yeah. So this is where we're getting, you know, sometimes those toxic levels of, you know, estrogen, for example, that's so unregulated and it's yeah. so difficult for the system to be metabolising um, 
you know, when they are so, when they are really overweight. So obviously mm. um, diet and lifestyle and everything else that comes into play with looking after a patient holistically um, is yeah. critical. Crucial, absolutely crucial. I want to go back just a step, Andrew. You mentioned before falls on the coccyx. And, you know, obviously children fall all the time, but, you know, sometimes you hear of, an injury that took place at the age of eight years old where the little girl fell off or slipped off the seat of a bike and, you know, hit her coccyx on the crossbar of the bike and broke the coccyx. And then that's kind of people just go, oh, don't worry, the coccyx will heal itself. But could that be related to, you know, some of this dysfunction in the pelvis? And then what would have happened had that been corrected earlier on, like if if it was related? Um, oh, that's a really great example um, of that that coccyx issue because normally once you fracture a coccyx, particularly if it kind of sits at that 90-degree angle um, anteriorly, yeah. that's yes. a pretty tricky thing to heal um, mm. and it's kind of stuck like that really. And um, that and my understanding of that, I'm thinking of those um, sacrotuberous ligaments that obviously yes. anchor into the base of the coccyx and then down to the base of the, um, the pelvis as well. And um, when all of that is um, disrupted, they're part of that, the stabilising structure for the actual sacrum. And so when that sacrum is distorted, um, particularly if we've got, you know, like rotational um, issues through the sacrum, that's also creating that rotational distortion pattern through um, the uterus too, um, mm-hmm. which is going to be affecting you know, obviously uterine position, but also blood, nerve, and lymphatic flow to that area. Um, And uh, this just came to my mind, so I'm just going to share it with you. But the sacrum um, means sacred or holy bone. And I just love that because um, I think it's the keystone to the whole, um, the way I see all of that pelvic health as well. Um, So if we've got a little girl who had a big fall, um, you know, when she was really, really young and her body has, you know, there hasn't been sort of any, um, you know, any ways to address that, then we know that that's certainly going to be turning into a chronic issue. And the longer something has been there for, the more adaptation that the body has created to overcompensate for that really. And normally with um, coccyx issues, you'll see um, either a dramatically um, anterior or posterior sacrum in my experience. That's just, you know, what I've seen in my patients. And when I've looked at x-rays and those sorts of things of patients as well who've had those big coccyx injuries. Um, And the longer it's been there for, the more adaptation, so the harder it is and the longer it's going to take to change. Well, that kind of makes sense. So we then start to talk about the the link between an acute dysfunction and a chronic dysfunction, the length of time between something being checked and, you know, then brought to attention and regulated or managed really well could have a significant role to play in uh, in, in the reproductive health and certainly, you know, definitely the reproductive health of that particular person, that, that girl, that young girl, even the young lady. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we know that, for example, a retrograded uterus is a risk factor for infertility and a pelvic distortion um, that might happen in or, or pelvic um, like organ distortion that might happen in, say, something like um, endometriosis, for example. Um, mm-hmm. We know that that is a risk factor and, and it's called the so-called pelvic factor that mm-hmm. increases the risk of inf- infertility for patients with endo. 
Um, and yeah. that's observed like a really common observation in laparoscopic surgeries as well. Um, so those adhesions that form that distort the pit, the um, you know position of the uterus and can also distort, for example, the sacral position, yeah. um, can change how the the oocyte is released from the ovary. It can change how the ovum is actually picked up in the fallopian tube and it can impede that ovum transport as well. Um, And I think that they even showed, there was a study that showed that in um, monkeys, which is probably, I guess, the closest thing to a human study really, that in um, monkeys with endometriosis, um, it showed that their fertility was impaired because of those pelvic adhesions and because it also affected like follicle rupture. And that's also because of that pelvic distortion pattern. Yeah. So I'm blown away that monkeys get endometriosis as well. Like that, I know, isn't that terrifying? That's and got I, me. That's got me. I can't remember if it was um, – Oh, I'm, this is a long time ago that I read this, but I'll I'll have to dig it out. I can't remember if there was a causation for this. If they were given endometriosis, essentially, um, in the right. first place, wow. um, and then that was assessed. Mm. Okay, unbelievable. Now we off air. We haven't got a whole lot of time to go, but I think we could probably make this into a. We could do a second part to this particular interview, and I, I reckon that might be worthwhile because there's a lot of more information that I think we need to get from you because we've only done two of the five S's so far. There's, there's a lot more <gasps> oh, to go. I know. So we did talk about cortisol um, and you were touching on a, a new, I suppose, approach to the understanding of what could be going on and that's unregulated inflammation as a result of hypercortisolemia. And I think that's where you were going with that. Is that something that we've got time to discuss now or should we come back to that in another episode? Um, oh, Damien, that's such a good question. So um, there is some new oh let me get started and then you can tell me if you want to go down that rabbit hole. I might tree top it <laughs> okay. um, there right. because what I really want people to understand is that there is a direct connection between pain and hormones. Um, yeah. so and there's this saying that um, that I have is that adequate pain control cannot be achieved without hormonal homeostasis. So hormone levels actually serve as biomarkers of uncontrolled pain. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like personally, clinically in practice, I actually find pain so boring. Um, like I, it doesn't interest me at all, but I know it certainly interests a lot of patients. Um, yes. But now that I've sort of looked at the other dimensions of pain, I find it a hell of a lot more fascinating. And there is this new emerging research that shows that major pain control mechanisms of each sex hormone in the steroidogenic pathway has actions um, of pain modulation. So including things like immune modulation, like anti-inflammatory action, cell protection, tissue regeneration, even like glucose control, which is affected by pain as well. Um, And that hormones also, like particularly estrogen, they modulate the central nervous system receptors and nerve conduction too. So this is certainly very much like a two-way street. And If we look at, say, um, I think a really great example of this is how estrogen can be either pro-inflammatory and pro-nociceptive yes. or it can be anti-inflammatory and anti-nociceptive um, yes. depending on its balance. Um, so, okay. and, so the balance sorry. of estrogen versus progesterone and testosterone, for example, or the balance of estrogen versus cortisol and adrenaline? Or is it all of it? Like are we are we talking like this big HPA? Yeah, because we know that obviously no hormone 
works independently. And it is yeah. that, I think we, we always refer to it as that hormonal symphony orchestra of balance. And cortisol is certainly the conductor. I think I heard someone say is the conductor of that orchestra, which I think is really um, accurate. Yes. Um, but estrogen is either pro or anti-inflammatory and nociceptive, just depending on the phase of the cycle and its balance and obviously the body's ability to metabolize it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas testosterone appears to be pain protective. So mm-hmm. it has mostly anti-nociceptive actions and can down-regulate the activity of estrogen receptors in the brain. Mm-hmm. So I think this is super important for men as well because that means that low or deficient testosterone levels are linked to higher risks for you know, all sorts of chronic pain states um, and inflammatory like you know, nociceptive nervous system stuff that goes on. But also for men who may be aromatizing testosterone into estrogen too quickly, that would be part of why we see those painful inflammatory conditions in those men with lower pain thresholds. Um, Damien, do you see that in practice as well? Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, you definitely see um, some men come into the practice, um, they may be carrying a, a bit more weight in and around the yes. middle areas of their belly, you know, and we do know that men can carry a lot more, um, pr- you know, kind of visceral fat and, you know, to the tune of, say, 20 kilograms more um, than what women can and that is a huge hormone impactor and influencer and definitely you see those men who are very sensitive to pain, you know, it could be a tiny little thing that's not right and they're in a lot of pain. So, yeah, I definitely see that in practice, no doubt about it. And it makes a lot of sense too with the women um, that are hypersensitive. Sometimes you can have an obese lady lying on the table and you just lay your hand on that person and she's jumping off the table. Um, And so there's that hyper sensitivity that you kind of go, oh, this is weird, but it just kind of makes sense with this new emerging research that you're talking about. Mm, Fascinating. And when it comes to cortisol, um, Damon, without going into um, there's so much there around cortisol and how, um, you know, that whole white carbonic pituitary, adrenal, ovarian, thyroid axis is sort of stimulated with, with stress and pain. But in this, like, stimulation phase of severe pain, hormone levels initially go up. Mm-hmm. But if the pain persists, so cortisol goes up, right, in, in response to that pain, there's um, there's a threat and that's what that pain response is. And yes. if the pain persists, that hormonal system is usually unable to tolerate the stress of the pain. So then we get this reduction in that, um, which then gives us this reflexive kind of low cortisol picture, which is actually the most serious hormonal complication of severe chronic pain and that's its negative impact on cortisol Um, and women with chronic pelvic pain for example actually demonstrate low cortisol levels rather than those with acute pain who originally had like high levels so women with chronic pelvic pain have hormone levels that are consistent with prolonged consistent stress I just find that so interesting. Yeah. This is so unbelievable. This is so unbelievable. There's a lot more that I'd love to discuss with you. Um, And I think that we could probably make a second um, episode of this and I'll I'll go to the bosses and I'll ask them, can we get Andrea (laughs) back on for another one? And if you're listening to this and you're wondering, oh my gosh, there's so much more that I want to learn from Dr. Andrea, you know, please do another podcast. Then 
send us some send us some um, feedback let us know but I think Andrea we, we've come really close to time and I'm going to have to call it on this one because I there's still three S's that we've got to get through and <laughs> I just know there's so much that we can cover including timing and why do people go to a chiropractor and why do they go for a long time or is it just a short term thing and so I really want to cover that off but I think we should to do that justice come back and do that in another podcast will you come back on and do another podcast with me Andrea? Oh, Damien, I would love to. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be great. Well, I think we'll leave it at that for today because we're going to run out of time and we'll bring you back on for a part two, Andrea. And I know that people will be chomping at the bit to listen to you again. But Andrea, that information today was unbelievable. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine. It's been an incredible, incredible interview. Thank you, Andrea. Oh, Damo, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. To get more information about Dr. Andrea, head to drandrea.com.au or wellnesswomenradio.com. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Damien again. Join us next week on FX Medicine for part two of this series on the biomechanics of reproductive health with Dr. Andrea Huddleston. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode.